Welcome back to the Segmentist Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz. We've got the usual crew here for the week of March 22nd. Had a pretty fantastic weekend of bike racing. The first monument of the year, Rafael Alfredo Binda. Some fantastic racing, uh, particularly fantastic for the Trek Segafredo team. Talk all about that in a bit. How is everybody? Abby, you had a bit of a ski debacle this morning, but you look better now. I'm fine. Yeah. We won't go into it. <laughs> it well, well, we can just summarize, though. It turns out that Abby's ski is that she was, well, I guess to back up even further, Abby used to be a ski racer. And then when she was racing bikes, she was no longer allowed to ski because that's a pretty common thing to put in a, into a pro contract. And then Abby got some new skis that she was very excited about using and was finally about to use them. And then apparently was told that they weren't mounted properly. The bindings weren't mounted properly. And it turns out they are. And that they're fine. So it was a lot of emotional turmoil for nothing. Yeah. Like a solid three hours of emotional turmoil for no reason, basically. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not saying uh, there's going to be a few people out there who are a bit like me and Dane are listening to this podcast because we might have just had a Slack conversation while you guys are chatting, just saying, I couldn't care less about skis. Get on with a bike bloody racing. <laughs> Words to that effect. Brutal. That kind of takes care of my intros of everybody. You've heard everyone now, except for maybe Dane. Dane, say some words. Hi. Yeah, I'm Dane. Good to see you or hear you. (laughs) Perfect. Let's get into the show today. We're going to talk about Milan San Remo. We're going to talk about what happened. We're going to talk about Trofeo Alfredo Binda. Ditto. We're going to talk about what happened and what uh, one of the teams maybe did wrong. Got a little... uh, well, bike exchange news. And then for this week's Nerd Nugget, we're going to talk about something that just hit the site this morning, Monday morning. New Garmin SPD power pedals. We'll get into that later in the show. But first and foremost, as always, Shoddy Dave, what are we learning about Continental this week? As always, people, sit comfortably. Let's delve into this ad. Last week, Continental debuted their new Ruben and E-Ruben tyres. Made for rural and urban environments. In brackets, Abby's wrote, hence the name, which I've only just realised, R-Uben. And E-R-Uben, as in rural, urban. There we go. It's not named after the sandwich? What sandwich? You know the Reuben sandwich? Never heard of a Reuben sandwich. We've heard it. Good quality it's bacon like a, and egg. No, it's like a hot sandwich on, is it usually on rye with pastrami, sauerkraut, Swiss cheese, and... Russian dressing. Russian dressing, that's right. So it's just like a ton of really random things. It's also corned beef is the meat. Corned beef, not pastrami, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Is, is this like yeah. an American thing? Because it seems like it could be an American thing to see is how it's like a mishmash of things from other countries. Based off of Shadi's expression, I'm saying yes. <laughs> It doesn't appear to be something from the north of England. That's what we can decide, I think. Exactly. <laughs> if it was from the north of England, it would be called something like the Continental Sausage Roll. But it's not. It's called the Continental Reuben. Where was I? Right. These tyres fall into a new category of bicycle tyre, the SUV all-rounder, especially designed for outstanding performance on and off-road. The Reuben slash sausage roll 
comes in both clincher and tubeless with the e-ruben. Well, the e-ruben is specially made for e-bikes. They look kind of like mountain bike tyres, but they don't slow you down on pavement like your typical mountain bike tyres, which none of us will know because we're all roadies, aren't we? Hey, 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 bite your tongue there. That's highly debatable. I feel like Kaylee rides mountain bikes more than he rides road bikes. Probably. Well, uh, actually, for the rollout of these tyres, Continental called up Matt Jones, one of their mountain bike ambassadors, to show off the versatility of them. Uh, you can see the launch video on Continental's YouTube channel or click the link in the show notes or go to Sitting Comfortably, HTTP. No, no, you don't have to read it. You, you sure? It. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> youtube.com slash watch question mark v equals Stop. e zero ui q5 wdhqi you missed it uppercase and lowercase there kaylee <laughs> now nah, just click it in the show notes you'll be much better off can we ask continental to do some limited edition rubens in tan sidewalls with sausage roll on them because that's a sort of a good nice nice golden sausage roll I mean, they do listen to the podcast, so I think you've just made your request, Jody. We'll see whether, well, how they respond next time we chat with them. Thanks, as always, to Continental for sponsoring this week's episode. Love working with y'all. Now let's get into the show. So we've got tons of racing to talk about. Two very big races happened over the weekend. Do we want to kick off with Alfredo Binda or MSR? What do we want to start with? I think we start with Milan San Remo since that's what happened first. We'll go with chronological order. All yeah. right, Dane, walk us through Milan San Remo. Yes, it developed much the same way that the race tends to develop. Uh, we had many, many hours of relaxed riding through the northwest of Italy. Uh, and then when people started to tune into the race, uh, things got a little more exciting. There was some action on the final climbs, but maybe not as much as hoped for or not as much as expected, not as much as has happened in recent years. Uh, we had going into, so, you know, the final two climbs of the race, you got the, the Cipressa and the Poggio. And going into the Poggio, all the big names were towards the front, although Matthew Vanderpool was a little farther back than I think he wanted to be. Uh, but the Ineos Grenadiers really just hammered it at the front and I think kind of clamped down on any action that might have happened there. Uh, there were some aggressive moments, but we didn't really see a big move get clear on the Poggio. Uh, yeah, brief, brief uh, aside about Ineos' tactics. I, I, I tweeted this out. that They won my award for the most confusing tactics of the day for their hit song, uh, Riding for a Sprint Without a Sprinter. Because what on earth were they doing? Why, why would you go into the bottom of the Poggio with a couple riders who were only going to win out of an, a very small group and then keep the pressure on super consistent, fast, but super consistent, so as to make sure the group stayed as large as possible. Uh, what on earth were they doing? My thought was maybe they wanted Mikhail Kwiatkowski to follow up their big move with, uh, with an attack, or maybe Tom Pidcock, and then that just didn't happen. That's the only thing that would make sense, because you're right, they had no sprinter, they didn't really have anybody, I mean, Kwiatkowski's kind of fast, but it was a real, a real head-scratcher. Yeah, it was almost like they... If they had just let it be more chaotic, you'd think that that would work better for their particular set of riders, yeah. right? Because you've got, you've got Pigcock and you've got Kwiatkowski who probably can follow almost anything. But 
yeah, to, to sort of, you know, spend four of the six minutes on the Poggio just sort of cranking out behind Filippo Ghana at 550 watts or whatever he was doing, probably more than that, just didn't make any sense to me. And then that ended up sort of changing the entire rest of the dynamic of the race, uh, which granted was only about another five minutes, 10 minutes, something like that. But still, that, that, that then set the tone for the remainder of the, of the race. I think they just wanted to get a bit coverage because uh, one into into Marsh one he got a load just before him didn't they <laughs> needed to get the name out there sit in the front for the TV cameras yeah exactly they don't get enough coverage for the rest of the year do they but it was it what what impressed me about Ineos was that they did take the race on which they never have before or not, compared to other teams we should say so it was nice to see that but I think they I don't know if they were overly confident in Pidcock because I think he was overly confident in himself on the descent because the way he went down there, like chopping up uh, a couple of people going into that first corner where we've seen crashes previously made you think like, is this a young gun thinking he can go downhill faster than the rest of the pros, which is a slightly foolish thought I would have thought. He did, he did say afterward that he was a little bit lost on the way down, too. I, you know, it's not a race that he's done before. I'm sure he did a bit of recon, but he basically admitted that, like, he didn't really know where the corners went, which is not usually a way to go downhill very fast. If you don't know how sharp the corner is, what's at the exit, things like that. So, yeah, there's maybe, maybe a bit of overconfidence. I just found it a very confusing tactic, uh, which, yeah, almost... It really didn't want to did not work out in their favor because they didn't even have, end up with anybody in the top 10. So Ineos may want to rethink that one for next year. Right. Uh, Ineos helped, I think, keep the attacks to a minimum. There, there were some attacks on the Poggio. Ajina Philippe was away for uh, five seconds. It wasn't long. Uh, there were attacks that just kind of didn't really make it. Uh, things were pulled more or less back together. We had a pretty compact lead group going down off the descent. and. Heading into the final three kilometers, Caleb Ewan was still right at the front of the race, which was pretty incredible. Uh, he is not somebody, uh, he's a pretty versatile sprinter. You expect to see him do okay over some climbs, but uh, over 299 kilometers and the Cipressa and the Poggio, this was a really impressive ride from him. And he was right up there uh, on the Poggio and, and coming off the top of the Poggio. So looked in really good position, but I think because he was there, the whole dynamic of the of the finale changed. I mean, there were other fast riders there. Wout van Aert was there. Uh, Matthew Vanderpool was certainly not slow. But I think with Caleb Ewan there, there was a pretty strong shift in the dynamic, and everybody started to think, I have to get away. There's no way we're going to win this thing over Caleb Ewan in a sprint. And so with about 2K to go, Jasper Stuven attacked off the front, and nobody followed him for about five seconds. And that's not a winning strategy for anybody else but Jasper Stuven. Uh, there was an attempt by Soren Cry Anderson to bridge, uh, and he actually did bridge, uh, but the rest of the group just kind of looked around at each other. The the big favorites we, we talked all week about, Matthew Vanderpool and uh, Wat Art and Julian Alaphilippe, they were there, but they did not uh, close the move down. Heading into the final 200 meters, uh, Soren Cry Anderson and uh, Jasper Stuven were up the front, and they looked like they might get caught, uh, but that didn't happen. They, uh, I think Stuven just kind of found a little bit of a second wind, and Soren Cranderson didn't have it, so he actually ended up getting caught, and Stuven 
just had enough to hold out and, and take the win with Ewan for the second time in his career. Winning the sprint for second, which must have been disappointing for Ewan. Uh, but Steven was just in front of him and took the win by less than a second. His first big monument win. A uh, really big one for Trek. It is a shame that Ewan didn't have any teammates up there. We saw Tim Wellens not on a great day. He actually sort of popped off near the top of the Poggio. Um, yeah, just, just, just unfortunate he didn't have at least one teammate to try to pull that back. Because it ended up being so close. If he'd had one teammate to dedicate himself and just lay, him, lay himself on the line, probably could have pulled that one back. Yeah, I think that was all that would have been required. There were, uh, I think, three teams, give or take, that had uh, two teammates in that final group. Uh, none of them really wanted to bring things back for Caleb Ewan, though. And that meant there was no sprint at the end where, yeah, if he just had one teammate. I mean, and, and we talked, I think that the cycling world has been talking about Philippe Gilbert's uh, ambitions of winning Milan San Remo for the last two years. And I wonder if Lado Sudal had just gone all in on Caleb Ewan. Uh, maybe things might have played out a little bit differently. But they didn't. And yes, for Steven with uh, his attack, I mean, it was perfectly timed. And it's yet to give a lot of credit to him and for their, their team composition. Uh, no Mats Peterson in this race. They went all in for Steven and uh, yeah, he just he finished it off perfectly. I like that MSR has finished without sort of a big bunch sprint for the majority of the last probably five, six, seven years. Yeah. Uh, whereas for a long time before that, it was just the Sprinters Classic, right? And it was really quite rare that it that it was an individual rider or a small group that would that would hit the line together. Makes for incredible racing. You know, I, I always I always find it funny when when MSR is on, right? You've got seven hours of absolutely nothing happening on television. And this year in particular, they were running TV from the start, which is kind of funny. Uh, but then what other race on the calendar guarantees you? 15 minutes of complete insanity at the end, right? Like Flanders, okay, you know there's going to be some good racing stuck around in there. There's going to be, you know, up to Kottenberg, Paderberg, etc. There's going to be good moments. Roubaix, same thing. There's going to be good moments. But sometimes someone attacks at 60K to go and, and wins it, and you know it's going to happen a fair ways out. What other race on the calendar is, is, is like MSR in that you are 100% guaranteed 15 minutes at the end of the race where you have no idea who's going to win and what's going to happen. That's why I love it. It's that those 15 minutes make the whole rest of it worth it. You can tune in at an hour to go. It's one of my favorite races of the entire year for, for that reason. Somebody created a website that is, is Milan San Remo exciting yet.com. And it's just a white pe- like a white page. And it says, is Milan San Remo exciting yet? And then it just says, no. At the bot, and then I think it changes to yes, but it was too exciting for me to check when it was actually. It did exciting. change. It changed to almost, I think, and then yes, at some point. I thought it was actually a little bit late. I thought it changed to almost a little bit late. Hmm. Oh, they need to they need to update the website a little bit earlier. But yeah, I, I I just love it. Like like I said, it's 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 easy to disparage. I think a race that's that boring for that long, right, where nothing happens, but that all that time on the bike is what makes the end work. We talked about this last time. In, in the context of of adding super long races for the women's peloton you know that that first six hours is what makes the last hour work uh if you don't have the first six hours then none of those climbs are hard enough and it's just a big bunch sprint every single time so i i love that it's it's something a little bit different uh it's a different kind of challenge and it like I said it just you always get 15 minutes of 
completely insane bike racing every single year. What other race can say that? I mean, in theory, couldn't you get the same result by putting everyone on trainers for six hours and then having them hit the start line like 25K from the finish? 100%. <laughs> yep. That would be a little silly, though. Come on, just make them ride from Milan to San Remo. Any other uh, talking points here, Dane? Yeah, do you want to talk about the the hug between um, Jasper and Ryan Mullen that lasted a minute? The minute hug? The minute long, like in the middle of Jasper's, Jasper's like post-race interview. He was doing his post-race interview and Ryan Mullen came up and gave him like a hug that legitimately lasted a minute. They were just holding each other for like a minute. Sometimes you need a hug. It was glorious. I Sometimes mean, it was you want to give a hug. No, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, <laughs> is, is there a, is there a time uh, a time qualification for that UCI sign for hugging? I think the time is zero seconds. Is probably the time. <laughs> that, yeah. So, but I also don't think that they're ever gonna. I mean, there's no, they're not gonna enforce it though. I think they basically just said, please don't do this, and they're not gonna. Yeah. There's no. There's no like uh, fine or anything. No. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just a suggestion. Yeah. So. They can't even. They can't really relegate him, can they? I'm sorry, but yeah, you might have come across the line first, but you're gonna. You're yeah. gonna- can you imagine? Could <laughs> you imagine if Stoyven was relegated because of a post-race hug? Could you imagine what that? What the sort of just absolute chaos that would ensue? You get the time deducted for the length of the hug. So Jasper actually finished like a minute and twenty seconds. If you combine the hug with Quinn Simmons and the hug with Ryan Mullen, then. <laughs> I think there'd be pitchforks and fire at UCI headquarters in Agel, Switzerland. People would show up. Oh, man, that would be... All of Belgium would, be would storm them, yes. <laughs> right? Oy. I've got one other talking point, and that was the fourth place finisher of the race. Peter Sagan, who actually beat Matthew Vanderpool in the sprint. Uh, He's back. We have not really seen him Is doing he? a whole lot. And in, in, the, in the big biggest one-day races. Well, he didn't even race them last year, so there's that. Uh, I think he's got to be happy about that because he had a very, his, his sort of preseason prep was derailed. He had a bout with COVID-19. Uh, he is going to be, well, he's at the uh, Volta Ciclista Catalunya this week ahead of Flanders and Roubaix instead of racing Gent uh, Wilgem in 83. But this is a very promising result for him. I mean, to, to finish up there in the top five at a 200, 299K race, I mean, I assume the form has to be at least somewhat there. I don't know what this means for I mean, we, we might not know what to expect from Flanders even after Catalonia because they're so different. But uh, it, it is, a, I think, a promising result for Sagan and, and, and for people who have been wondering, where is Sagan? I mean, he had a pretty quiet Tirreno. It, it, like, so, so MSR is only a second race of the season. He did Tirreno, which granted is a stage race, so multiple days. But still, he was pretty quiet at Tirreno and then showed up with those legs. So, yeah, maybe, maybe actually timing the, the Flanders-Roubaix run pretty well this year uh you know weirder things have happened right still plenty of time between now and then talking about not not old guys but guys that used to win and we haven't seen win for a little while greg van avermaet was looking a bit handy admittedly only coming 13th but it was nice to see him showing his face again and being up there with all the young guns because they are all ridiculously young it's amazing who's jumped seems to be the new uh, should we say the cool kids on the block, the in crowd? I think the new team is, is going to be a, a really good place for Von Avermaet over the course of the classics. I mean, he's got some real firepower in that team. 
And there were times over the past few years where you felt like maybe Greg Van Avermaet was lacking one or two big teammates in the finales. And maybe not so much in Milan San Remo, but, but definitely at a race like E3 and get Wavelgum with Oliver Nass in there and some of the other t- uh, riders that the, the team picked up over the course of the offseason. I think Van Avermaet's going to, if he's got the form, I would not be surprised to see him up there battling with the riders who are, you know, 12 years younger than him. He knows how to win. You don't forget how to win. Agreed. Agreed. Final point on Milan Remo, the return of how the race was won on Cycling Tips. We have partnered up with Cosmo Catalano, so I think a lot of our listeners out there will have watched these at some point. Yeah, a little video uh, breakdown of how the race was won, and we'll be doing these with Cosmo throughout the year at major races. So super excited to have those back. Go check out. They're on the site. They're on Cycling Tips, and they're also on our YouTube page. Uh, we also had some questions about the little circle R in the title. People were questioning whether or not Cosmo really had trademarked how the race was won. He did. And indeed, he did. It is, officially, it is officially a registered trademark, so that circle R is completely justified. Well done, yep. Cosmo. There was a, a small kerfuffle with um, a book being published here in the United States under the same name. It uh, had a different name when it was originally published in the UK. And when it was brought over here, it was given the name How the Race Was Won. And that's when Cosmo decided to trademark it. So, yes, we did not add the little R for no reason. (laughs) And we'll have, like I said, more of those from more races throughout the year. So keep an eye out for those. Make sure you head over to the Cycling Tips YouTube and give us a subscribe. Now, let's move over to another race won by a Trek rider. Profeo Alfredo Binda. which. My wife asked me this weekend whether it was named after the pasta, and I said no. Do we know who Alfredo Binda is? Whenever I hear Alfredo Binda, all I think about are toe straps. Because <laughs> there was a time when Alfredo Binda toe straps were the ones to have. He was an Italian cyclist. Five-time winner of the Giro. Yep. Five-time winner of the Giro, three-time world champ in the 20s and 30s. So that's who it is named after. That Abby? is who it's named after? Yeah. Not the pasta. Or the toe straps. Abby, tell us what happened. What happened in this bike race? Yeah, it was it was a super exciting bike race. Um, the we talked about it a little bit on the freewheeling podcast. If anyone wants to check that out, we did a preview and went over really the the whole course. But what's important to note is that the last fifty ish six sixty plus k is small loops of multiple climbs so there's a short climb and then there's a longer climb that's about 4k long and that really is where the race happened um there was attacks all morning the first 120k there was many many breakaways that went all btc lubiana was definitely the most aggressive team especially marlon rusa who um is an incredible time trialist she was on the podium at worlds last year for the time trial what's important to note in the early race breaks is that Audrey Cordon Rago for Trek Segafredo really did an amazing job of patrolling all of the moves that went and thus Trek Segafredo didn't have to work at all in the beginning of the race. Um, as it kind of got closer to the pointy end of the race, we saw some really interesting moves from, um, at one point, Anouska Koster, who is a former Dutch national champion, she had like a cheeky little move at one point with three laps to go. 
And that really set the stage for how the race went for the rest of, for the rest of the day, really. Um, Ruth Winder brought her back. So Ruth was setting a pretty hard pace on the front. And then as soon as Ruth started to kind of slow down a little bit, Taylor Wiles, it looked like she went on the attack, but really she just made the pace super high and it strung out the field a lot. Um, when Taylor started to fade, Kasha Niwadoma went and that really separated a group of elite riders from the rest of the peloton. It was Kashini Wadoma. Uh, at one point, Ashley Moenpasio was there, although she did get dropped from the group. Um, Soraya Paladin for Live Racing. Mariana Voss, crucially, who has won the race four times before. Um, Elisa Longa Borghini was the next to attack, and her attack was just absolutely stunning. She is clearly on really, really good form at the moment, I mean, carrying the form she had last year and she was really strong at Strada Bianchi, but just got outsmarted by SD works or Chantal. So Elisa Longa Borghini went and it was, I mean, the race was over. She rode away and there was a combination of, I think her being really strong, but also in the group behind, it was a group of five. It was since Mariana Voss was there, the motivation to chase really wasn't that high. I mean, we saw Cecile Utrip Ludwig and Kasha Niwadoma were really the only two that wanted to work to bring Elisa back. Um, and and Voss, obviously. But Soraya Paladin was really kind of slowing down that chasing and was not helping at all. And or was when she was getting on the front, really slowing the group down. So it ended up that Aliza uh, won by a minute and 42 seconds. Mariana Voss won the sprint for second, unsurprisingly. that The finish just really suits her. It's like a right-handed turn into 300 meters to go, and then it's a, just a small drag up to the line. And Voss has... It's just exactly what she is her strength, that finish line, which, I mean, is why she's won it four times before. And then Cecile Utrip Ludwig got third for the third time in her career. A little bit bittersweet, I think, for her. Um, and then the the sprint for the Peloton was two minutes, 40 seconds behind Elisa Longoberti, won by Elisa Balsamo, who's also having an incredible season so far. Um, I think some of the takeaways from this is really Trek. Going into this race, we were asking, like, how is anyone going to be SD Works? They had... They've had an incredible start to the season. They've won five races with five different riders, which is just, I mean, really an incredible feat, I think. Um, and Trek did it. There was It was a three-minute effort, really, by Ruth, or maybe like a 10-minute effort by Ruth Taylor, and then they set up Aliza perfectly for her to attack, and the field so, was so strung out that there was no SD Works riders to be able to match the pace. But I think also... SC works their their strength is their numbers and their numbers were racing at a different race in Belgium. There was a 1.1, um, the Omloop van de West hook that Kristen Mayerus and Amy Peters of SC works went one, two. They just like went off the front, just the two of them went one, two. So, um, they didn't have their a team there, but I would expect Ashley Moenpasio to make that elite group of whatever six or that went before Aliza attacked. So that was really surprising, but yeah. Anyway, it's that's perfect cool. example of, of the old adage, which is that you attack when you hurt the most, right? Mm -hmm. It had to, it had to be really, really hard 
for Elisa to be able to get away. And yeah. that's, that's essentially why the teamwork was so important. Uh, you know, without Taylor, Wiles, and Ruth Winder, it's probably not fast enough, not hard enough for the other group to separate and then for Elisa to separate, right? Because you need everyone else to be on the limit or else you're not going to get that gap. And once she had the gap, it was just a monster effort. Just She's so, so, so fit right now. That's, that's pretty clear. And then, like you said, having Voss in the group behind definitely worked in her favor. Who wants to pull Voss to the line? Uh, yeah, really, really fascinating tactical day, I thought. And I, I, I really like Trofeo Binda for that. It seems like it is that every, almost every year. Um, maybe it's those short little loops at the end that, that tribute to that. But feels like there's always some, some good tactical play in the last sort of 30, 40K. I feel like short circuit loops with some climbs always make for an interesting race. And it's a pretty good way to just, you know, make a race happen even if you don't have a large swath of land to cover. Can't ride through an entire country? That's fine. Just find a cool little circuit with some climbs on it. And usually the riders will make it happen, particularly if it's, if it's riders like the ones we saw at that uh, Trofeo Fedo Binda this weekend. They'll make it happen. So gotta love the circuit races. I mean, we, we talked about it with uh, the Healthy Aging Tour. It's literally a circuit on top of a trash heap, and it was such an exciting race. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Circuits are... Lauren and I talk about it all the time on freewheeling, but circuits are our favorite type of racing. Speaking of freewheeling, small announcement. Abby? Freewheeling is now weekly. Yep. Very excited about this. And Abby, you've got a couple the co-hosts. Yes. Swapping it out. Yeah, yeah, so at the moment, it's um, the regular Lauren Rowney and I, and also Amy Jones has joined us, which is really exciting. Amy is just an awesome human, <laughs> but she also bounces off well with Lauren and I, and she has a lot of interesting insights into everything going on, and um, she, she definitely adds a lot to the mix, so it's been really fun. Yeah, you might recognize Amy's name from our Women's Cycling Weekly newsletter that we do with her. Or I should say she does, and then we post. <laughs> uh, yeah, so now she's going to be on, on Freewheeling as well, along with Lauren and Abby, and we, we have made it weekly now, which I think is great. It'll be more kind of able to react in real time to the bike racing. So it really, you know, if you want an even deeper dive, just like we do, you know, a deeper tech dive over on Nerd Alert, if you want an even deeper dive on women's Peloton and women's racing, head over to Freewheeling. Make sure you subscribe. It'll drop every single week now. Yep. I think one other thing to just mention while we're talking about women's racing is it's old news and we should have talked about it a couple podcasts ago, but, uh, team bike exchange has joined Trek Segafredo in paying their women's team, the men's minimum, which is really exciting. Um, they, they've stepped it up these with two teams doing it. I expect more to follow. And this is really the, we talked last week about having, having a women's, um, a women's Milan San Remo to which I asked all of my friends in the women's Peloton. And the resounding answer was hell no, do not, do not make us do that. Uh, Kashini Wadoma actually said it best at the Giro last year, there was 170 kilometer long stage that she said was, I think she said was the worst day of racing of her life <laughs> because it was so boring. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I think when it comes to women's racing and, and growing the sport and making it more competitive, uh, having the women on, a, on a livable salary is 
one of the things that is the most important alongside the live coverage. Um, and so seeing bike exchange team bike exchange match their men's minimum salary for their women's team is, is really exciting. Yeah. That's awesome. Fantastic news. Not a whole lot to sort of debate there other than good. Yeah. That's an excellent move. Good. Ab, you've always said that you sooner not see, you'd sooner not see the big pro teams have a women's team as well, or just have a women's team on their own. If I remember rightly, am I putting words in your mouth here or is that true? Um, I mean, yes and no. I think that if a men's team wants to have a women's team and they do it right, then I'm all for it. I mean, it's definitely setting the stage for the team to have more support from the very beginning. If you look at a team like Trek Segafredo and Bike Exchange, they have more followers because the men's sport is more popular. So automatically they kind of get these people that support the men's team to support the women's team. And, um, they have the platform that's already been built by many, many years of having the men's team around. So there are definite, definitely benefits to having, having a women's for the pro men's teams to have a women's team as well, as well. But there are also instances where I think, if the women's team is only going to be kind of like a, oh, look, we have a women's team, like kind of situation, then you might as well just not have it. Because if it's about having a women's team to, to further grow the sport and, and, and be excited about women's racing and, um, want to support the women, then absolutely 100%. Like I want there to be a women's team connected to a men's team. If you're just doing it to show, I don't know, that you can't, I don't know. There's definitely instances where, and there are teams that I will not name, Takuna Quickstep, that should never, ever, ever have a women's team. No, the the only reason (laughs) I bring it up is because I'm just wondering if um, every men's team was forced to have a women's team as well. Whether this uh, equal pay structure would actually just not exist because, like you say, there would be teams there that would be like, oh, not doing it for the right reasons. They're just doing it because they had to. And I'm just wondering if uh, there's plenty of women's teams out there that aren't connected to a men's team, will they step up the game as well now? Or is it a case of we can't? I think, I think there are really, really amazing women's teams out there that have no affiliation with men's teams like FDJ, Nouvelle, Aquitaine, Futuroscope although it has the same sponsors as the men t- men's team, they're not connected in any way. Their management isn't connected in any way. And Stefan, who runs that team, is really passionate about paying the women a livable wage. Um, the same goes for, look, SD Works, one of the best women's teams that there's been for years and years. And they, I don't know what their minimum is, but I do know that they pay their women really well and they don't have any interest in joining forces with a men's team. And I actually wouldn't, I would love, I would not love to see them join a men's team because I think that they do a really good job on their own. And the men's minimum salary is something that's set forth by the UCI. It's not a team thing. So if they wanted to go out there and say like, look, we pay our women the same as the men's minimum is, is by UCI rules. That's not something that has to be tethered to a men's team. That's just a number that the UCI puts forth. That, did that answer your question? Yes. Thank you, Abby. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a kind of, it's a complicated, it's a complicated uh, discussion, right? And, and I think that there's, 
as Abby said, there's kind of there's benefits to both models, right? The sort of independent model, it's it's been proven that that works really well, right? SD works alone is proof that that can work really well. But attaching a team to a men's program that has a budget that is, you know, forty x the 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 biggest women's teams, that's also can be very helpful, right? Because you're talking about a, a relatively small portion of the men's budget, uh, and the men, you know, men's team can can do things like lean on the Tour de France to get big money sponsors, and then potentially some of that money can end up supporting a women's program. So there there are sort of positives and negatives on both sides, and I think that you know, frankly, as long as the as long as the intent is good, it doesn't really matter either way right as long as the people running the program are doing it for the right reasons and i think that most of most but not all of the women's teams associated with men's teams are that way right like movistar is that way and trek is certainly that way and you know there are lots of good examples there uh but as always it's all about the the sort of motivation and intent of the people at the top so i mean really the reality is the more the, the greater percentage of the women's peloton that is paid an actual living rate wage, whether it is, you know, from matching the, the men's minimum or just teams saying we're just going to set our own minimum, like it doesn't really matter how you get to that point as long the, the, the end the end goal is just more essentially full time pros, right? Because if, if you're not making a living wage, you're not a full time pro, you have to do something else. Uh, and that makes it pretty hard to compete, which then sort of drags the, the whole sort of average of the peloton down is not what we want so all positives i think Mm -hmm. yeah steps in the right direction uh awesome that bike exchange is doing that and hopefully yeah hopefully more teams follow suit i mean you know even like like you said abby they don't need to use the uci's number they can set their own limit and they can announce that and they can they can tell the world that this is what we're doing so maybe we'll hear more of that going forward i wouldn't be surprised yeah uh what are we at quick sepkus update uh, yeah, Sepku is currently racing the Volta Catalunya, which is going on this week, by the way, and has a bunch of big names, so I would definitely check that out if you're looking for something to watch this week. Uh, plenty of uh, big GC riders at the Volta Catalunya this week. Uh, Sepku is going to be, I think, getting a leadership chance for Yembo Visma, and I think he's going to get a couple of those. Maybe not sole leadership. He's got some other riders around him at Catalunya, for instance, but I think he's going to get some opportunities. He has just signed a contract extension to stick with that team through 2024 which is great for Sepkos because that is obviously one of the best teams in the world and I think he's developed really uh, really well there and has well he's, he's won a grand tour stage which that in and of itself is a big deal uh, but he's been a, a big part of their support squad for the grand tours and I do think he's going to get some chances of his own at races like the Volta Catalunya etc moving forward so good news for Sepkos and I think good news for American fans He's, you know, he's a really promising rider, and I think this could be a year where we see some really big results from him in races like this. I always find it funny when a, a, a foreign lad, in this case a, a Yank, fits into a, a team that has a strong national feel already. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's, it's amazing how, yeah, they develop so well when, realistically, yeah, Jumbo Visma's got like, a long history from word perfect all the way through Reynolds, is it Reynolds? No, Word Perfect, Robo Bank. And it's always been a Dutch team with Dutch riders. It's amazing how they blend into a team and, and develop so well. 
Yeah, it's kind of incorporated. It's incorporated a, a bunch of nationalities pretty well. I mean, uh, George Bennett's spoken about this a fair amount as well, and he really likes it there. He really likes the the sort of feel and vibe of the team. And same thing, right? He's from a very different part of the world, very different culture. Uh, so yes, yeah, so they're, they're doing something right over there. I think. Well, they're all chilled, aren't they? You know, you know what I mean. Dutchies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sep's from Colorado, so maybe that's why they get along so well. I think it. It kind of seems like a lot of the shift in um, how international that team is and how well uh, non-Dutch riders fit in has a lot to do with Primoz Roglic being such a like high factor in that team and having such a big role in the team. I think that he kind of sets the stage for more international riders being accepted into the team. Agreed. I suppose they've got a long history churning out good riders or having riders stick with them from other nationalities, Oscar Ferrer, Levi Lempfire, Matt Heyman. There's plenty to go at. Well, I think that wraps up our racing for the day. Uh, Dane Cash has left the chat. That's always a good indication that the racing discussion is over. Before we move on to today's Nerd Nuggets segment, a brief a brief thank you to Vela Club members out there. There's a, there's a pile of new ones, actually, as of late. And we just wanted to say thank you for joining Vela Club. It is massively important to what we do here at Cycling Tips. It supports things like this podcast. It supports freewheeling. It supports a lot of our of our coverage. Uh, without it, Cycling Tips would not be what it is. That is for sure. So if you haven't signed up already, head over to cyclingtips.com slash sign up. It's uh, the price of about two cups of coffee a month. It's really not particularly expensive. And like I said, it is massively important what we do here. So if you like CT, if you like the content we produce deep down in our content minds, show us by joining Vela Club. And thanks. Before we move on, this week's episode is brought to you by Quad Lock, the strongest smartphone mount for your bike. Your smartphone is the most accurate tracking device with easy-to-use apps like Strava and Komoot that track your rides and upload them straight to the internet Quadlock allows you to mount your phone right to your handlebars with a secure dual-stage lock that holds even over the roughest terrain. Perfect for road, mountain, even commuting. For more information, check out quadlock.case.net slash cyclingtips. Now, let's get into Nerd Nuggets. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. James, Nerd just alert. before this podcast went up, you published a story on a new pedal power meter. I'm going to guess that there is a fair amount of interest in this based off of the live analytics I have on our website. That story is currently the number one page on our website by, oh, a factor of about eight. <laughs> <laughs> so seems to be some interest in this particular new pedal power meter. Tell us about it. Well, we clearly are entering some sort of hot period for pedal-based power meters. Uh, Garmin has had those vectors for quite a while. They're on the third generation now. And we got a little sneak peek courtesy of a uh, someone who I, I, I'm not, I won't say exactly where they are, but posted on the Trainer Road, Trainer Road Forum that uh, they had actually gone into a shop and was able to purchase a pair of said Garmin power meter pedals that have not been released yet. Um, so, oops. Oops. Um, 
And yeah, we don't have any official information on this yet. Uh, I reached out to Garmin this morning, but I haven't, uh, haven't gotten anything back yet. But yeah, just from the pictures, uh, you can tell quite a lot. So there are, uh, so first and foremost, the, the vector family name has been changed to Rally. So the, all, of Garmin's power meter pedal, or all of Garmin's power meter pedals are now going to be uh, called Rally of some sort. Uh, and then they are going to have look Kio compatible versions like they always have, but they are also now going to have versions uh, compatible with Shimano SPD SL road cleats, which is huge. And then also uh, an SPD version for gravel and cross country riders. Um, as far as I can tell, again, this is, uh, there is definitely some speculation here because we don't have any official information. Um, as far as I can tell, all of these pedals are based on the same spindle assembly. Um, so in theory, I guess you could swap bodies, although I'm not really sure why you would in this case. Um, so in theory, they, they, it looks like they all use the same bodies. They use the same coin cell battery as the current version. Uh, we don't have any, any word on accuracy or runtime. Uh, I will say I'm pretty happy to see a replaceable coin cell because uh, for something like this, that's going to see a lot of charge cycles over its time. I'm, I'm actually pretty happy to not see a rechargeable batteries because they, a rechargeable battery because they, those do degrade. Um, yeah, I mean, they're going to be expensive. Uh, this person apparently paid 1200 bucks for the dual-sided version. There will also be single-sided versions. Um, so they're going to be expensive. Uh, chances are they will, you know, they'll have a, a, a really good claimed accuracy. Um, don't really know anything about the weight right now. Uh, the picture that was provided for the SPD pedals, it shows that they're pretty tall. The stack height's pretty big. I mean, you do have to pack in quite a lot of hardware into that spindle assembly. Um, so yeah, we don't really know a ton but there are going to be a lot of options. So when you combine this with the news that Favero is uh, supposedly coming out with an axle assembly that can be retrofitted onto existing Shimano SPD SL pedal bodies, um, and then also the news that Wahoo is coming out with uh, power meter pedals under the speed play label, then there's going to be a lot of options hitting the market pretty soon. I bet we see Wahoo try to get, well, one, the power meter pedal out quickly, and two, you know, they, they teased uh, uh, some sort of mountain bike or gravel pedal as well. I bet they try to jump on that relatively quickly because, you know, we all know from watching the industry that that's, that's kind of where people are going. I would wager that there are more, more and more people, uh, particularly in the sort of, you know, deep enthusiast part of the cycling world who are switching over to SBDs somewhat permanently. Uh, just more and more people riding on mixed terrain who don't want to run a, a traditional road cleat, run a traditional road pedal. So th that's why this is particularly interesting to me because it's it is a you know it's an SBD option. It's a it's a gravel power gravel pedal option. Uh, which if you're if you're a keen watcher or even not a particularly keen watcher of the bike industry right now, you know that that's where all the attention and money and interest and a lot of the buying power is currently centered. Which puzzles me because realistically, gravel riding's about going out, getting lost, and not racing, is it? It's about not worrying about the numbers, not worrying about what you've got on your Garmin or your your Wahoo monitor. It, that, it they just don't seem in, to mesh. That is the case in theory, Dave, and that certainly is where a lot of the impetus for gravel came from. Um, but I mean, you do have to remember that. I mean, a, a huge driver of gravel riding popularity were these crazy events like, um, uh, God, what's it called now? What used to be Dirty Kansas? Unbound gravel. Yeah, what, uh, you know, events like unbound gravel. Um, I mean, those were just massive, like, see if you could finish them gravel events, but they've turned into, you know, sort of these 
essentially, you know, real races now. We talked about this before, kind of like the racification of, of gravel riding. And that most certainly has happened, especially as more traditional road riders are making their way over to gravel. So it was really just a matter of time before stuff like this started popping up. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's um, there's there's a bit of like sort of deep in my soul that 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 immediately tries to reject, you know, the the the, the numbers associated with gravel for exactly the reasons that you say. Shadi is like kind of feels like it doesn't fit in with the culture. But then on the other side, I, I remember that you know, a lot of people just enjoy watching those numbers, right? Even if they're not using them to like fully train, it's just, it's a motivational factor. Maybe it gets them out on the bike more frequently. Maybe it gets them riding a little bit harder. Yeah. To each their own is kind of what I come back to is, you know, gravel can, gravel can be number oriented if you want it to be. And if that's where you gain enjoyment from your riding, which I've known plenty of people who, you know, they ride because that number is motivating to them. The little number on their head unit is motivating to them. And I wonder yeah. if it's a case it's, it's of... It's a different vibe than what I go for on the gravel, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. I wonder if it's a case of the other huge segment that's growing is your Zwift online training, which is obviously all down to numbers and power output, heart rate, all that sort of stuff. And I wonder if it's like people are seeing that during the winter, during lockdown on, on their turbo trainers at home, on their computers, and they're wanting to carry that over onto yeah the gravel bikes that they've just bought onto the road bikes that they've just bought mountain bikes it wouldn't surprise me i th- i think it like i said i think it's easy to kind of uh disparage chasing numbers particularly in that side of the sport it doesn't feel like it fits but like i said if that's what you want to do if if that's if you spent all all winter on swift you've been watching your your threshold power just tick up watt by watt by watt and and the result of the hard work that you're doing is is visible in a number then that number can be super motivational it could get you out on your bike so yeah i come back to as long as as long as people are riding i don't really care why <laughs> i don't really care what gets them out the door uh so yeah I, I, and I'm, that's why i'm particularly excited about about additional options for sort of the non-pure roadie triathlete type rider uh, in the power space, right? Because th- there have been power meters you can use on a mountain bike for sure. You know, you can get a cork that fits on a mountain bike, but I think more options the better, really. Yeah, and w- one of the pers- one of the comments that popped up on the on, on the article that's on the site right now uh, is from someone who who brought up exactly that. They were like, you know, we we already have good power meter options for mountain and gravel bikes. Why would you want them built into a pedal? You know, into a into a, a part of the you know, a component that's particularly susceptible to like rock damage, that sort of thing. And ultimately I feel like, you know, yes, it does come down to options for one, but two, it does also mean that uh, a pedal based power meter is going to be a lot easier to transfer between different bikes than a crank based one. So in this particular case, yes, what is, what Garmin is seemingly about to release does appear to be quite expensive. I think I mentioned already, you know, 1200 us for the dual sided pedal pedals. Um, but if you have multiple bikes and you only have to buy one power meter, then, you know, there is some merit to the argument that it sort of actually kind of makes it cheaper in the long run for them. Yeah. And in theory, I mean, if all of the, if all of the strain gauge and electronics are built into the spindle, you could bash a pedal body all you want and probably just replace the pedal body. Couldn't you? Hopefully. In theory. I mean, my, again, we don't have any official information from Garmin just yet, but my hope is that. Uh, at least for the SPD version, that they might offer that as a possibility. And the fact that they, uh, just from the image, you can tell that they do have stainless steel wear plates 
built into the aluminum pedal body. So they do seem to have, uh, you know, considered durability and longevity in mind. So, yeah, I, I would love to see a replaceable pedal body on here because that certainly by far would be the least expensive portion of this relative to the electronics. Fingers so, crossed. Yeah, we'll see. And plus, plus, I, but you know, you what you whack you whack pedals on a mountain bike on a pretty frequent basis around <laughs> so, around here all the time. Yeah, like I've I've, I've I haven't destroyed that many SPDs because they're pretty hard to destroy, but I have definitely gone through one or two of them. Uh, and usually, you sort of you hit the little clasp that goes over your cleat bend that part uh, which often also results in you ejecting off of your bicycle at whatever speed you're going so not super fun but yeah fingers crossed for a replaceable pedal body yeah so at this point the only the only uh i guess major pedal platforms that we do not have a power meter option for are time uh road and mountain and crank brothers so who knows we'll see what happens there as well but you know it certainly seems like all of those companies are going to have to release something at some point. So yeah, we'll find out. We'll know soon enough. It's amazing to think how many power options op- options there are out there now. I remember when it was SRM, that was it, and you had to have huge, big books to use them as an amateur or even as a pro. But just, I mean, just imagine how many power meter options you could have on your bike at one time. <laughs> no thanks. I mean. <laughs> If anyone ever like makes a drinking game out of these podcasts, I really hope that you have to shotgun a beer every time Shadi goes, I remember when, <laughs> and starts reminiscing about that. Oh, man, I've got a terrible memory as well. Like anybody who I meet at a race and I call mate, well, this is going to let cut out the bag. We'll know now that I don't remember the name. And it's probably about 95% of people because I'm just terrible at remembering stuff. Shadi, my name's Kaylee. All right, Steve. We've been working together for years. I'm pretty sure that Ronan has three different power meter sources on his bike. He very well might, but he also has good reason for that because he actually puts out power. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he has something to measure, unlike the rest of us. Yes, yes. <laughs> all of them, all, any power meter I put on is just going to constantly read about zero. <laughs> I'd love to know if there's still professionals about who refuse to use a power meter. I remember. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Jesus. I remember when Oscar Ferrer used to send his power meter back. His team would send him <laughs> one and he'd post it straight back saying, no, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. All right. Time to wrap up today's episode. I think we're we're about we're about done. Go check out the story on cyclingtips.com if you missed it on the new Garmin Power Pedals. What a great website. What a great website. Make sure you subscribe to Freewheeling, which is now weekly. Yay. Your, we're pretty excited about that. Uh, while you're at it, why not just subscribe to Nerd Alert too? You know? Why not? Definitely. Go go do the deep dive on the tech stuff. Yay! And sign up for Vela Club if you haven't already. All the cool kids are doing it. So many cool kids. Sign up for Bell Club. Cyclingtips.com slash sign up. Pretty easy to remember. All right. Let's call it a day. You haven't we'll had this much homework week. since junior year of high school. <laughs> There's a lot of homework. You gotta go do. Subscribe to many things. Some sign up stuff. <laughs> we will be back next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>